so inclusive in that sense that that his love is higher, wider, longer, and deeper than you could get your head around. And you'll need the power of the Holy Spirit to give you supernatural insight just to glimpse it. And it will still be, it's going to be beyond what you ask or imagine. So that's the inclusive element. Welcome back to the The Imagination Podcast, a podcast about God, faith, and faithful imagination in the 21st century. I'm your host, Phil Odd. So this is part two of my conversation with Brad Jersak. In this episode, we talk about the shape of Pentecostalism. We talk about new and better ways of understanding deconstruction, which is this philosophical term that has recently become popular for many in the church. And then finally, we talk about his book, In. In the previous episode, we spoke about sacraments, which are these symbols loaded with meaning and meaning-making, whether in the church or the empire. And I pick up on that language here as we delve into Pentecostalism. So, you know, you're talking about this view of the Eucharist. So I grew up Pentecostal and still Pentecostal. And I often think of us as the teenagers of the church in terms of we grew really, really quickly and then all of a sudden felt like we didn't need our parents anymore. And I'm kind of on a rampage to get the table back in our churches and to understand it as the active presence of God in our midst. But one of the things that I'm interested in, because I feel that Pentecostals, um, and I'll talk about charismatics here as well, are in perhaps a bit of an identity crisis at the moment, which provides us a really, I think, great opportunity to shape maybe what Pentecostalism looks like in the future. So I know that you've walked kind of, and you talk about this a little bit at the beginning of In, as I recall, a quite charismatic expression now to the Orthodox. I'm curious as to what you might imagine would be a beautiful future for, say, the Pentecostal or a charismatic church. What would that look like? Okay. Well, first of all, it would be to affirm some of your key tenets, particularly that is the experience of the Holy Spirit. And I believe in that with all my heart. Um, I find that in different forms in the Orthodox Church. I I would say it this way. It's like, if you want to, instead of diminishing the centrality of the work of the Holy Spirit in Pentecostalism or charismatic forms, I wouldn't diminish that at all. I would take it up like several notches from there. I would I would try to cleanse it uh, of, mm. of some of the shenanigans around control, around personality cults, yeah, um, especially uh, around hyperactivity and um, sort of a frenetic kind of hyperventilating <laughs> prophetic yeah. element um, yeah. around pretty broken sense of how faith and healing works and all of that, I, but but I'd still be going for those goals. Right. So I'm like, the means, the means we've used to these goals sometimes take us off track. And we might ask the, you know, the elders of the church, the the early church fathers, like what was their experience of the Holy spirit? And so they would, they would say this, um, that the, the indwelling grace of the Holy spirit transfigures us from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. And this Mm. is all like second Corinthians three. And so it's like sanctification on crack and um, where, where we're especially looking at the transforming power of the spirit. And and here would be one major practice I would shift completely. And and that is the, um, 
in, in, in charismatic movements, there's often been almost like a proclamation that God is not here and we need to get God to come here. And so we're going to do all the things that the prophets of Baal might have done to get God to come here. And so, yeah. um, and, and that revival, the, the prayer for revival is almost like, well, he's not doing anything and he's not here. So we're going to, we're going to pull heaven down and we're going to, mm. and uh, in, in uh, the ancients, they're like, no, no, we declare that the kingdom of God is here. We declare yeah. that the Holy spirit is here. And, that that the spirit actually is in us and when we say come holy spirit we're not trying to get him in the door we're welcoming up him up from our bellies you know mm-hmm. that wow. this, the spring of living water is in us and it and that doesn't happen through hyperactivity it happens actually through contemplative peace and radical surrender and openness to, to and uh, so for me i shifted sort of from a charismatic to a contemplative form um, but I have to admit, some of the contemplatives are like quietists. In other words, a quietist is someone who's like so passive that there seems to be no engagement with the Holy Spirit. It's just like, I'm going to be quiet now because I'm tired or something. Mm. <laughs> but it's yeah. like, no, no, we're 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 operating from a, a place of peace, but also of faith that Christ is in me by the Spirit and wants to, not, it's not about power, it's about transfiguration. So that's even mm. a stronger word than transformation. What if wow. the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Holy Spirit, as I sit in the fire of the Holy Spirit, I take on the properties of that fire. And that's just classic <laughs> ancient church language. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, it, they would use the image of a sword being put in a in a this furnace. And so the, the fire of the furnace is the Holy Spirit. And you're still a sword. But now you're hot and you're shiny, you're bright. So you're taking on the properties of that fire. Well, I mm. wonder what that would look like in Pentecostal practice now. I suspect it would be begin by like slowing down a little bit. Uh, mm. And so that you could, because here was my experience. We would try to get Pentecostals to listen to God. We'd say, okay, now we're going to, God's going to move in the service this evening. And let's listen to him for a moment about how he wants us to flow with him. And then suddenly everybody's going off on in tongues. And we're like, no, we said, listen, <laughs> tongues isn't listening. Uh, right. You can do tongues later, but we need yep. to just shut up for a moment because God wants to speak. Right? <laughs> and so, um, uh, and many of them would wait for the prophet to speak. I'm like, no, listen to the spirit in your own heart mm. and then share what you're hearing. So some of it's just like tweaking our practices, but we, while still saying that, that grace is the Holy Spirit at work inside of us. Yeah, and you actually refer to the Holy Spirit in, uh, in, in I think, giving the name grace, like capital G, grace. I love that. Yeah, it's because in orthodoxy, we would say grace is not the unmerited favors of God. It's great, it, grace is the uncreated energies of God. And if it's uncreated, it is God. And what is the uncreated energies of God? Oh, it's the Holy Spirit. And where is this this grace happening in me? And so I like to I like to speak of grace with a capital G to indicate that it's the per, they are experiential encounters of the Spirit changing us from the inside. Okay, some more context. In the last episode, Brad talked about political amoralism and civil religion. 
And we've both witnessed earthly political systems that are luring Christians away from the kingdom of God, even while using the name of God. So here I'm talking about the flip side of that coin, people who are hurt because of these distorted images of Jesus they've inherited. So one one of the shifts that's happened for me um, in how your work has impacted me, now that I've come to the university campus here in Western Canada, I feel like I'm actually witnessing the victims of that dangerous belief. And uh, you had written that if we hand our sons and daughters of faith exposed as misogynistic, racist, unconcerned about creation and the poor, they aren't wrong to leave it. Mm-hmm. And I agree, but I'm also simultaneously heartbroken. I tire a little bit of the talk of deconstruction just as a popular kind of saying, but coming here, I've seen the necessity of something like that at least, where the vision of God that people had, the imagination of God that people had was so brutal that they need to start back close to the beginning at least. And you talk, you delve into this, and I just loved your work, your chapter on deconstruction. Uh, I thought it was so beautiful. What does deconstruction mean? What does it actually mean? How have we used it? And what's an alternative picture that you're painting? Okay, so I'll start with how it's come to be popular in the sense of a dismantling or a tearing down of something. And I like to ask people in deconstruction, first of all, are you doing this or has this happened to you? Tell me your story, Mm. you know? Mm. So some of them, it's a deconstruction of their faith and they didn't mean to. They just started losing their faith. So it's like they're undergoing a deconstruction. Others, it's more active. It's like... We need to burn down the patriarchy and empty the pews. Right. Okay, yep. so that's that's an action then, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, and then the second thing is like, okay, but let's let's be careful. What are you deconstructing? Are you deconstructing Christianity or a religious system or a faith community mm. or a, a bad a, a toxic image of God? It's like okay, fair. But um, like, did you actually deconstruct that church that you left, or is it still there? It's like so. <laughs> Or, oh, okay, so the deconstruction is something inside you, maybe. Um, Right. Now, is it your faith? Is it your heart? Is it your relationship with Jesus? Like, did you not meet? Have you left the church, but are you still following Jesus? Or did you ever meet him there in the first place? Mm. You know, so, um, so that's kind of troubling to me. If someone grew up in a church and Jesus is just a belief system that was imposed on them rather than a person right. that they encountered, well, that's on mm-hmm. the church then. But also, um, I'd want to say, like, sure, walk away from that. Like, don't walk away from Jesus if you, or maybe I could help you meet him for the first time. Mm. Uh, so that's a bit about how it, how it's being used these days. Um, yeah. And actually, the the word was seems to have been coined by French philosopher Jacques Derrida, and that's not what he meant. Right. Um, what he meant, and I think what I do in my chapter is I I deconstruct deconstructionism, and by deconstructing it, I don't mean I'm dismantling it. I'm saying let's be mindful of the hidden ways in which the words we use and the metaphors we use are working uh, beyond what we recognize perhaps. And so I'm call- it's really a call for greater mindfulness. And uh, my friend Sean Davidson wrote a really good definition of in, in the book. It takes him about a page to explain it, but I'm like, oh, okay. So, so in deconstructing deconstruction, what I'm saying is 
Is that the best metaphor? Is it the only metaphor? Why does that word have the monopoly on our faith transitions? Uh, if someone wants to choose that word because it resonates with them, I get yeah. that. But yeah. I'm like, did you choose that word? Or has it been just another thing you're indoctrinated with now? And and so what I try to do is I give a whole, a whole series of alternative metaphors um, from art reconstruction to detox and rehab to washing a wedding dress out of the spots and wrinkles. And um, most of my met- most of the metaphors I use, I would say, are more careful than the term deconstruction as it's come to be me. Right. Uh, less, hopefully less violent. Um, if it's your heart or your faith or the gospel that needs to be uh, restored rather than a religious structure or a bad belief system or a toxic image of God that needs to actually to be burnt up. That's amazing. In fact, it was interesting because after I read, I read that and I thought, oh my goodness, this is so helpful for the work that I'm doing with students. And then I was reading on uh, Irenaeus confronting the Valentinians and basically saying, uh, you've taken the face of Christ and rearranged it and made him into a dog or a fox. Wow, yeah. And I thought, yes, this is this is what's happening. I'm meeting with students and they're coming in and they're talking about God, but the God that they're talking about looks nothing like Jesus. Yep. But there is a restoration of putting the pieces back together to see the beauty. In fact, Irenaeus um, refers to it as, you know, as recognizing the jewel, <laughs> which I love. And uh, anyway, it was so helpful to hear you talk of that in, in those different metaphors, which I think are just so much better. By the way, my, my Orthodox baptism name is Irenaeus. So maybe he wow. was helping me that day. I mean... He says it so much better than I could. I, I would encourage, actually, people just to Google Irenaeus plus fox plus dog and see what he says there, because they will see exactly what they're encountering today. It's unbelievably relevant. Okay, we are about to talk about Brad's book, In, Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and Lamb. And this book will be considered controversial by some. Why? Because Brad writes about the redemptive power of Christ as all-inclusive, that all are declared in by Jesus. But that's my summary. Here are his words. I, for one, believe that God's banqueting table is wide open because of Christ. The higher my Christology, the wider I see the reach of Abba's love. Okay, now this is important. This is not pop universalism. He'll talk about this, and you need to pay careful attention to what he says and writes and what he doesn't say and write. Brad's views are formed by a careful study of Scripture, he is a theologian after all, and the theology laid down by some of the church's earliest theologians. I don't want to say much more since in is his work, but I felt the need to set up this conversation for those who are in the dark. Currently, this topic is being widely discussed in theological circles, and Brad is most certainly one of the important voices in this conversation. So here we go. I want to briefly ask you about in. You talk here about writing about two complementary truths that you hold in tension, which are Christ's one-of-a-kind revelation and Abba's all-inclusive love. Would Jesus alone is Lord, but the good news is good news not just for Christians be a fair way to kind of put that into a sentence? Yeah, yeah. 
it tones it down a little bit. Like not just yeah. for Christians is a is is a pretty conservative version of all inclusive <laughs> love. But you know, yeah, yeah. exactly that. Um, and here's the premise of the whole thing from the New Testament uh, and from the early church fathers, like Athanasius in his work on the incarnation. But I'm just thinking Romans five, First Corinthians fifteen. He's like what what Adam did to all, Christ overcame for all. And Paul repeatedly uses the phrase, how much more? How much more, yeah. How much more? And so we've had this idea of kind of a a Adamic, by that I mean concerning Adam. We've had an Adamic universalism. That is, Adam screwed up everyone, but Christ only fixes a few people. Yeah. And so, and Paul is just overtly denies that. He's like, that the impact of Christ on the human race is broader, deeper, higher, longer than the impact of Adam. That's fascinating to me because we've always had much more of a remnant mentality, right? Um, that there's this elite inner group who gets the benefits of the cross. And really, that, that's strange because only the five-point Calvinists would say that theologically. But practically speaking, we've kind of all went there. Yeah. Well, totally. I think even about um, this whole, what do we call it? The, the age of accountability. Yeah. <laughs> people, people feel like intuitively um, this idea that well, up to a certain age, actually, the grace of, of Jesus will cover you. And people intuitively know this. And I would say when people hear, many people at least hear you talking about this, I think their hearts will leap. And then there's a fear that settles in of can we even, like, are we even allowed to talk about this? So I, this is radical for people. I think there's a certain fear associated with it. But I've heard you differ what you're writing about here as hopeful inclusivism versus universalism. And I'm curious about your distinction between those two words. Well, and and even hopeful inclusivism, I'm I'm finding that that phrase isn't isn't super helpful because people are assigning wishful thinking or doubt to the word hopeful. That's not how the New Testament uses the word hope. The New Testament mm, yeah. says that Christ is our hope, and that's how I'm using it. So, first of all, inclusivism, that what Christ did, he did for all. He died for all. He, he's the savior of the world. So, I'm, I'm taking all these all in, these inclusive texts, and I'm saying Jesus didn't just die for the Christians. He died for everyone. Mm. Um, he didn't just rise from the dead for, for the elect. He rose from the dead and, and raised up all humankind with himself. That's straight out of the ancient liturgies, that, yeah. like word for word. Mm-hmm. Um, so inclusive in that sense, that, that his love is higher, wider, longer, and deeper than you can get your head around. And you'll need the power of the Holy Spirit to give you supernatural insight just to glimpse it. And it will still be, it's going to be beyond what you ask or imagine. So that's the mm-hmm. inclusive element. The yeah. hopeful part is, well, it's not, well, I hope this. The hopeful part is this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So, so I'm saying our hope, our hope for this is, is a sure hope in the, in the nature of God revealed in Christ as love for all. So that's what I've meant, but it's like uh, people aren't getting that. So I'm having to say something more. I'm, I'm using the phrase ultimate redemption. I actually believe in ultimate redemption. Um, I can't teach it as doctrine. I can hold it as a conviction. Um, mm. I can't teach it as doctrine because it was not taught in the early church as doctrine. But I can hold it as a 
a conviction because many in the early church did, including people who composed the Nicene Creed. So ultimate redemption means we do need a redeemer. Sin is a real problem. Mm. And we have a redeemer. His name is Jesus Christ. And he redeems through the work of the cross and his resurrection. So we need the cross. We need a resurrection. And then um, there is a summons to respond. And so there must be a willing response to that redemption. And then there is a final judgment. And I'm awaiting the final judgment. I'm going to pass, you're going to pass through the final judgment. The fires of that judgment will reveal what needs to be burned up, the wood, hay, and stubble of our false selves and our attachments. And what will come through as refined by the fire is pure gold and silver, precious stones and of your true self. So, okay, I said all of that to say this. I, I don't like the term universalism because these days, the popular use of that term would deny everything I've just said. Mm. The popu- mm. I mean, there is a kind of patristic or evangelical universalism that uh, um, Robin Perry or David Bentley Hart and these guys, I think they just nail it and their arguments yep. are irrefutable. But I don't like the the label universalism because they're they're an exception. M- most people are are saying sin doesn't matter, Jesus doesn't matter, the cross doesn't matter, the resurrection doesn't matter, final judgment doesn't matter, and the universalists don't even believe you need to have faith in Jesus. You know, it's like mm. I'm like, uh, well, I would deny all of that. I just did, in fact, right? So, <laughs> so yeah. It's too big of a paintbrush. It's too big of an umbrella term. If you can have people repudiating Christ and the gospel. So I'm like, well, I'm not that. And people who have been accusing me of it for 10 years because I, because I do have this firm hope in the, in ultimate redemption, but only through Christ and only through response. Here is the rub though. It's not all just a misrepresentation here. Here's where the, the actual battle is. Can death separate you from the love of God? Like, is it, is it really like if, if you die and you meet Christ five minutes after you die and then you see his face and go, oh, I get it now. Right. Will, will he say, oh, that's great, but I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do. Mm. It's too late now. Well, that's not the teaching of the New Testament. The New Testament says that Jesus now holds the keys of the death in Hades and that death can't separate you from the love of God and that his loving kindness is everlasting and his mercy endures forever, Right. So yeah, then the yeah. question is, could you still respond to it? Well, in fact, we see people responding to it in the last two chapters of, of the Bible. As the kings are bringing the glory of the nations into the city, and there's a river, a tree of life that heal, with healing leaves for the healing of the nations who are coming into the city. After, this is in the new heavens and new earth. And the spirit and the bride are saying, come, and the gates of the city are open, and they're coming. You know, like, yes. so I'm like, wow, <laughs> maybe we rushed to close out the Bible in Revelation 20, and we forgot there's two more chapters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're all doomed now, and you're going into the lake of fire forever, the end. Oh, wait, what's these next two chapters about? <laughs> yeah, so. I, and I think part of the beauty of what you do in the book is you discern people by telling stories. I talk with people sometimes, and I actually bring up some of these stories from in. They smile, and they're like, oh, isn't that isn't that so beautiful? I, and it's been my experience. So you talk about the uh, your friend, the prison chaplain, which I, it's just brilliant. Can you tell us that story really quick? I'd love to. Yeah. So this prison chaplain um, in our town here, he, you know, he's working with other chaplains that range from like fundamentalist Christians to Wicca, yeah. Wic- 
to Wicca, you know? And um, so they all have sort of a, their own angle on how they're going to approach the, the prisoners. And he started getting his head around this idea that what Christ did, he did for all, that, that they are included. So he started just whispering to them sort of on the side, like, hey, hey, buddy, you're, you're in. And then it's like, what do you mean I'm in? It's like, well, you know, all this God, God's love, it's, it's for you and, and, and you're in. And, and the reaction was so classic because I've done chaplaincy kind of work myself in uh, Bible studies in prisons and so on. And normally when you talk to prisoners, they're like, I, I didn't do it. You know, I'm not guilty or someone else did it or maybe I did it. But, you know, it's it's always finger. They won't own it. They won't. Own yeah. it. And so he starts and then you've got to you've got to try to convert them from there. So what Dean did is when he starts saying you're in. They start objecting and they're like, no, I can't be in because, and then they give their full confession. And it's interesting that that the kindness of God leads them to be truth tellers about what they've done. But then he said, okay, I've heard, I've heard that. And I'm telling you now you're in. Hmm. And they just initially can't get their heads around it. But then a few months later, they're like, Hey, I get it. Can I be baptized now? So it's interesting too, that, He's not just saying you're in and they're believing him. Therefore, I don't need to follow Jesus. Hmm. They're like, he's like, because of Jesus, you're in. And they're like, if I'm in, I want to know him. So suddenly the chapel services are doubling in size and they're having a wave of, we don't even call them like a standard conversion. And, and some of the other guys are like, I, I, can you do this? Is this, <laughs> it's like, yeah. apparently we can. The kindness of God leads to repentance. Brad, uh, to respect your time here, we'll wrap up. But I, I want to thank you for putting your neck out there. I can imagine. I probably can't imagine some of the some of the pushback and straight up anger that you've received through the years um, as people react against the good news that you're you're sharing, the good news of Jesus. Uh, where where can people find more out about you? Because you're you're writing many books, um, but you're also writing a lot of reviews and posts and different things. So w- where's the best way for people to find you? Um, they could go to bradjersak.com probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, or if they are into podcasts, I, I don't have a podcast, but I've been on a, a lot of them recently. Yeah. If they did a search for me on podcast, I, I write also for ptm.org and Clarion Journal. But if they if they just Google me, they'll find the good heresy hunters too. And uh, <laughs> some advice on that is uh, ask who they are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute joy. And really, I mean, you get my heart just uh, pumping as I'm hearing the, the good news that you're sharing. And I thank you for it. I'm hoping to get you out to Calgary here at some point to speak at the university. Thank you. That'd be fun. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Brad as much as I did. Make sure you check out bradjersak.com, some of the other sites he mentioned, and order his books wherever books are sold. Also, check him out on Twitter. He has a strong Twitter presence. So in the next episode, I begin my interview with Bob Ekblad, a liberation theologian who is absolutely fascinating. He's in France at the time, and we have an amazing conversation, so you want to tune in. Thanks for listening to the The Imagination Podcast. Grace and peace.